0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 31st, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. As Ukraine continues its fight against invading Russian forces, many Americans have been inspired to send arms to arm Ukrainians fighting to maintain their independence. And governments are also sending weapons. So, what should we know about what happens after a fight where weapons have been distributed? What are the longer-term consequences of these weapons transfers? Cato's Jordan Cohen comments. If you watch White House press briefings, uh, you would get the idea that the White House press corps is very, very interested in the United States establishing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, the president of the United States is not Uh, does not appear to be very interested in that. Congress does not appear very interested in that. And by all accounts, if you listen to uh, Eric Gomez, uh, our colleague at the Cato Institute, tell it, that would effectively be an act of war and not just from the Russian perspective, from just almost anybody on the outside looking in. And so the the question then becomes, well, what can uh, the United States of America do with respect to weaponry to aid the Ukrainian cause of maintaining their independence. And when you start shipping weapons overseas, it's kind of hard to say that that's definitely not uh, an act of war. So how do, how do you evaluate this uh, situation with respect to weapons and and what it, what it looks like uh, and what it is? Thanks, Caleb. Basically, what's happening
1: right now is the U.S. has been sending short to medium-range missiles, body armor, handguns, ammunitions. And Russia has not said this is an act of war, but they have hinted that at some level, if the U.S. sends some type of weapon that reaches a certain threshold, whether that's range or how many people it can kill, they will consider that an act of war. It's unclear what that is. It was very clear with the poll when Poland wanted to send Aircrafts into Russia that Russia thought that could very likely be a act of war. So it's unclear, but the thing is, then nobody knows, right? The U.S. doesn't know, NATO doesn't know. Russia's keeping it close to their
0: chest. All right. In terms of sending weapons, uh, what you said, the U.S. is sending short to medium range things. Long range things would be viewed differently by Russia, and I guess that's understandable. If you want to prevent uh, destruction in your country, Russia. Uh, deep into the country. Uh, so what do you view as the ideal position for the U S with respect to Ukraine? We, I see all these flags everywhere. I see this, uh, support being stated, uh, on behalf of the Ukrainian people. Um, but you know, if there's, if there's nothing behind it in terms of, uh, helping them protect their own country, it it seems pretty hollow. Yeah. So to be
1: clear, things like the short to medium range anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles, at least early on in the conflict, definitely did slow Russia down. But there are three main problems with this whole process, right? One is we discussed at some level, Russia may consider this an act of war. The second is there's no way to monitor these weapons, A, because it's a war and the government is just giving them out to whoever wants them, quite literally. But also because in 2020, the Department of Defense released a report that basically said in Ukraine, again, this is two years ago in Ukraine, there was no weapons monitoring capability whatsoever, and they needed to improve upon it. So the weapons we send, whoever wins the conflict, however the conflict ends, there's going to be a lot of loose guns, a lot of loose missiles. And then the third thing is, if Russia wins, how many lives are these weapons going to kill for what, for what, right? If just more death.
0: There have been some private actors, gun dealers in the U.S., who have uh, been inspired by Ukraine's fight, and uh, they want to send weapons to Ukraine to help. And apparently have had some pretty serious difficulties with the U.S. government preventing them from Engaging in that process.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this is because of two things. One, the U.S. government is concerned; it, they want to check exactly what a weapon is. Right? The, they won't care as much about a handgun, but if somebody's bringing a really strong missile system, that could be a problem. But the second, and perhaps more important one, is the method of transport. What the U.S. doesn't want is some U.S. citizen or or, or police officer, or whoever, going in with weapons, transporting them in person in Ukraine, and then shooting a Russian. Because then you have World War III on your hands. So they're being pretty restrictive on that front. They're much more open to just declaring $800 million of weapons being sent tomorrow by the government.
0: By the government. Um, it, It seems more morally defensible to allow individual Americans to engage in the process of sending weapons over there than the U.S. government compelling all Americans to pay for weaponry to then be sent to this conflict.
1: Right. I mean, is a a libertarian and somebody that cares about civil liberties, I totally agree with that. I also think the U.S. government, similar to being worried about a no-fly zone, is worried that one mistake will cause World War III. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis, we basically lucked out that Kennedy didn't trust his military, and the U.S. wants to avoid that type of situation now. Who else is sending weapons to Ukraine? I assume- Most of Europe. Most of Europe. Most of Europe, and right now, the U.S. is trying to get Eastern Europe to send long-range missiles to Ukraine on behalf of the United States or instead of the United States. So longer-range missile systems is what kind of the next phase of this conflict, I think, will be.
0: Yeah, it's easy to come to the conclusion that, you know, the we've got to do something, this is something, therefore we must do this, uh, when it comes to seeing people who— By all accounts, are fighting for their own independence against what is broadly viewed as one man's war uh, to seize control of a country. Um, It's quite another to try to decide whether that is worth a future in which a lot of weapons that we sent to a place that let's let's be honest, the Ukrainian government doesn't have a very strong record when it comes to uh, corruption. Uh, in its own government, especially with respect to weapons. Um, so so how do you evaluate that, that balance, uh, that attempt to uh, weigh the immediate need versus the long-term potential?
1: Right. And I mean, unfortunately, history is history, and we have sent substantial amounts of weapons, and those we will have no ability to track once the conflict is over. The more weapons you send, the more advanced weapons you send— the more likely these weapons are to end up in the hands of somebody you may not want them in the hands of. Because again, most of Ukraine is not a military force, right? They're citizens fighting for their freedom. And so what the U.S. needs to be considering with every one of these next weapons transfers is, are you going to be okay if somebody that has anti-American sentiment or, if a group that has anti American sentiment has hold of all of these weapons you've sent, not dissimilar to what happened with Al Qaeda in the late 1980s, where they just got hold of a lot of
0: U.S. weapons and then used them against the United States. Jordan Cohen is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.